0: Hey, listeners. Are you looking to monetize your craft? I know many of you out there are independent creators, publishers, educators, and of course, podcasters. If you're looking to monetize your passion, you have to check out memberful.com. Used by the biggest creators online, Memberful is providing best-in-class membership software for entrepreneurs and creators and has everything you need to run a successful and scalable membership program. In other words, Memberful allows you to build sustainable recurring revenue by selling memberships to your audience. You can send paid email newsletters directly through the platform, for example, without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can also publish your paid newsletter to a Memberful-hosted members-only website, putting your brand front and center. And most importantly, you retain full control and ownership of your audience. Setup is super simple, so get started today at Memberful.com. That's Memberful.com. .com and start earning. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Dan Park. He is the CEO of Clutch, an online platform for car buying and ownership. Before joining Clutch, Dan was responsible for building and scaling Uber Eats across Canada and was instrumental in driving the exceptional growth in this country, launching Uber Eats in 80 plus markets across the nation. In this episode, we dive into the rapid success of Clutch and its business model. We also talk about the market for cars and the rise in demand amidst supply chain disruptions, the company's 100 million raised and what lies ahead Dan's experience working at Uber, and what he thinks about the company's culture, and much more. And with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is Dan Park. You know, you've got a cool business, I gotta say. As someone that's (laughs) currently in the market for cars, you know, it was timely that Miranda showed me this, and uh, I was like, you know, you should have Dan on. So you've been at this, what, five years now or six years? Yes, the company's
1: been around for five years. Uh, I joined... About two and a half years ago, a board member at the company uh, came out who I'd known in the past. I was in venture capital prior to joining joining Clutch. I was working with Uber Eats and he came to me and was like, hey, look, like you're doing food delivery. Check out this car delivery platform we're doing. It's similar. So dove in, started looking at the market and found that the current solutions out there were just incredibly painful. Thought that there was a better way for for consumers to buy cars. If you look at the two alternatives that Canadians have right now, it's either you go meet a stranger in a parking lot and try to buy their car off of them or you go to a dealership drive 2 hours to a dealership and or an hour to a dealership and spend 4 hours, 5 hours there trying to negotiate with someone in a world where you can buy pretty much anything at the click of a button, you can stream movies to your phone, it seemed ridiculous that that was still the way that people bought and sold cars.
0: Yeah, were you looking at the US market and some of the influences down there like Vroom or, or Carvana, I would assume are the most similar use cases. Yeah, I
1: think those were two and Almost every global market or international market has a version of what we're trying to build. If you look at the UK or even South America, there's certainly companies that are doing something similar. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is create just a really seamless consumer experience around buying and selling vehicles.
0: And this is purely focused on used
1: cars. That's right. Yep. Used cars. I think that's the the one thing that You know, in new cars, there's a pretty high degree of certainty that there's nothing wrong with it, right? Mm -hmm. In used cars, there's so much variability. And frankly, very few folks, very few dealerships actually do any real work to the cars. We have large production facilities. We call them production because we we almost treat the business almost like a manufacturing facility where we have mechanics, we have inspectors that take each of our cars through a very rigorous process in order to ensure the quality of the vehicle. And because every vehicle that we have in stock touches one of our employees multiple times, we have near 100% certainty that the vehicle is is of the highest quality. And so we can offer things like a 10-day money-back guarantee and a 90-day complimentary warranty because
0: we have the highest degree of confidence in the quality of those vehicles. So we'll dive into the inspection and mechanical logistics side of the business in a moment. But before we do that, just from a high level so people understand, this is different from an auto trader in that it's not a two-sided marketplace, right? You guys are actually purchasing the car's and then Yeah, no,
1: Auto, Auto Trader, uh, Kijiji are, are partners of ours, and, and you can find our cars uh, listed on those sites. But no, we own every single vehicle that we sell to a consumer. And again, it goes through our process. And so it ensures the quality of that vehicle.
0: E commerce is one side of the business. The other side, as I understand it, is coming from the fintech yep, that's right. side. So, warranties, insurance, financing. Yep. There's a lot of moving pieces yeah. here. Yeah. It's a fintech
1: um, business. It's a e-commerce business. It's a logistics and infrastructure business. So we've got a lot of moving pieces that we're trying to trying to piece together, but I think the complexity is what makes it super interesting.
0: Initially, when you were looking at the business and the pain points, let's just talk about the buying cycle mm-hmm. for a moment. So I'm thinking about headaches around, you know, searching, comparing, test driving, financing actually closing the deal, picking up the car and then the warranty side of it. When you looked at the market, did you have like a scorecard in terms of what were the most common headaches and which headache was sort of the biggest pain point that consumers were having?
1: Yeah, I mean there's a very long list of headaches. I mean I think the biggest if you want to boil everything down to its foundation or its core, I think it's lack of trust, which is I think the largest issue in this industry. It's obvious in so many ways that consumers interact in this purchase where they, you know, they bring their friend or their car expert to come and they almost put on, you know, they feel like you're putting on battle gear to go show up at the dealership and you know, it's going to be a entire afternoon and you've got, you know, you've done so much research and you know exactly what to say when the car salesperson tries to try to negotiate with you. You've got all your data points and there's just so much kind of preparation that goes into buying a vehicle. And then on the back end, there's, you know, math around the financing that you want to be certain of. And there's different ways to, to obviously purchase a vehicle. And so, there's just a ton of pain points around the entire journey. And frankly, buying a car should be exciting. I mean, it's one of those purchases that that really can fundamentally change a person's life in terms of like accessibility and mobility and trying to kind of bring your kids to various events or go on a road trip or up north to go for a hike. So, there's a lot of things that people do with a car, but the purchase itself is obviously super painful. And so, when you think about the trust element, we try to make sure that everything we do revolves around building more trust because one... We firmly believe that the quality of our vehicles is one of the highest in the country. So the quality is at the very foundation of what we do. We want to make sure our cars are obviously safe, but also to the standard that we believe consumers should get in terms of a used car. And then the purchase experience itself, we're a technology company. So we use data science. We have a team of engineers to make sure that the price of the vehicle is reflective of what's in the market. And we have 10 or 12 different sources of data in order to make sure that the price of the vehicle is reflective of what's in the market. And so if you go online right now and you put in your VIN number, and because we have collected thousands and thousands of data points and bought like thousands and thousands of cars, we have a database and we have algorithms that can pop out the price of a vehicle in an instant cash offer. No photos, you answer um, a handful of questions and then you get the price of the vehicle and we use that also on the buying side. You know the price is the price, it's what's on the website. It reflects any wear and tear that's on the vehicle or condition of the vehicle. And then we we deliver that to you in a very seamless experience. It comes right to your door. And if you don't like it for whatever reason, it's a full money-back guarantee.
0: Yeah. And to that end, so, so you mentioned quality uh, safety experience as uh, some of the cornerstones of building yep. trust. This guarantee that you have on the back end, sorry, it's 90, 90 days? 90-day uh,
1: complimentary warranty and a 10-day money-back guarantee.
0: Do you find that you're getting the inspection side of the business right, such that basically the guarantee is almost like a non-issue for you guys as operators?
1: No, I mean, I think it's it's a constant feedback loop. Our our return Mm -hmm. rates are in the low, low single digits. So I think we are getting it right, but we're always looking, you know, ideally that number goes to converges to zero. That's never going to be the case, but there is definitely a feedback loop. You know, we could fix every single thing on a vehicle, but that would take an immense amount of time. And You know, some of those things, you know, don't affect obviously the safety of vehicle, like a small, you know, minor cosmetic scratch doesn't affect the vehicle. And sometimes the cost of fixing that is not something that the consumer would necessarily want to pay for. And so there's always that trade-off. And so there's a feedback loop that happens when we deliver a car and in that small minority of cars for whatever reason that either get returned or there's some issue with the vehicle, we can then use that and go back to our production teams and say, hey, look, like this is an issue that seems to be coming up. Let's go fix that. Again, these are not safety issues, but more cosmetic or you know, there's different types of things that don't obviously affect the safety that can be uh, issues for a consumer. But we want to make sure that we're capturing everything through that feedback loop.
0: Let's talk about the buy side for a moment. So how are you sourcing these vehicles? Where are you finding them? You mentioned the algorithm yep. that you built in order to determine what the price is or a fair price is. On the buy side, two-part question: One, how are you sourcing them? Uh, where are these cars coming from? And two, how long does it take to get them ready before you list?
1: Yeah, so it takes about seven to ten days before we get them listed. It varies. That's it's an average, but it can take longer for something. You know, right now there's shortages around a, a lot of things right now. Parts are sometimes one of those things, and so if a part takes longer to come in, then that could extend it. Some are in your perfect condition, so it's very very little that you need to do with the vehicle. We source them from a variety of different sources. Again, we have true marketplace business where a consumer can come in and say, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the country. I want to sell my car. That process can be very painful for anyone that's ever had to sell their car. you are know, likely like taking it to a dealership and you know most dealerships won't accept a car that's not being traded in. And then if you're trying to sell it personally, you got to go and you know, meet a bunch of strangers in parking lots. And that's obviously painful as well. We have this instant cash offer tool that you go on, you put your VIN into, the, into your laptop or your your phone, you answer a couple of questions or a handful of questions, and then you get a price, it's a firm offer, and then we'll come to pick up the vehicle in the next 24 to 48 hours and the cash will be deposited in your bank account. So pretty straightforward there. And then we source them from wholesale auctions, we source them from OEMs, we source them from fleets. And so we have a, a very
0: large pool of vehicles from which we source cars for the consumers. I would assume there's some pressure on cash flow in that you're purchasing these vehicles, you're storing them in a warehouse. (laughs) So there's the logistics piece, there's the warehousing, there's the inspection piece. I mean, it sounds pretty CapEx heavy, at least uh, to me superficially. How important is it that you have sort of the right Financial partners, uh, venture partners, debt financing partners in place in order to make this business.
1: Work. Yeah, no, it's incredibly important. I mean, we have over 2,500 cars uh, in stock right now, which mm. the value of that is over 60 million dollars. So that's capital intensive, and so you know we have the right partners at the table to help us do that. So That's more on the debt side, but then we also have equity support the growth. You know, we're trying to balance profitability, like any startup, growth versus profitability. Ours is not, certainly not a business that we're doing, you know, growth at all costs. We want to be measured in the way we approach things. We want to be disciplined. And, you know, I think choosing the right financial partners that share that view is, is super
0: important. You have raised over a hundred million dollars in funding to date, which is incredible. And you must feel great about that. It's a huge confidence booster for you in the business. Your latest round being a Series B back in November, so not that long ago, did you find it? difficult to sort of manage the fundraising process while also keeping your hands on the wheel?
1: We've got a great team and, you know, I spent a number of years in venture capital. So I kind of understand the landscape and kind of the process that we need to go through to raise capital. You know, we were in an environment last year when things were, I would say, getting done very quickly. And so the amount of time that it took to raise the capital was fairly short. Um, we proved a bunch of milestones that continued to kind of show the momentum in the business, which allowed it to be, you know, somewhat, I would say, more seamless than than maybe otherwise. And so we feel pretty good about the fact that we are well capitalized and kind of continuing to grow. But again, what we're seeing in the last six to eight weeks is that the market environment changed. So we want to make sure we're being very disciplined around cash and liquidity and making sure that we have the funding to make sure that we're going to build a large successful company that, you know, hopefully one day doesn't rely on outside funding.
0: So you mentioned the shortages around yep. parts. Uh, in some, in some cases, supply chain disruptions are commonplace. We've seen those disruptions impact a number of sectors, automotive being one of them, especially on the new car side of things. You know, inventory I think is at an all time low. You know this better than me. On the new car side, are you guys insulated from this? Given that you're sourcing a lot of these vehicles used.
1: Canada hasn't seen the supply shortage as much as the US. So that's one. Two, we're not fully insulated from the kind of top of the funnel. New car shortage is certainly being impacted by effectively chips. And that's trickling down to the used car segment where if you can't get a new car and you need a car, then you'll go used. And so travel in the US has come back in a bigger way. And so fleets, which are typically one of the largest purchasers of new cars, are holding on to their inventories and not cycling their inventory out. In Canada travel hasn't come back to the same extent, but Still, I think the number of fleets that are offloading their inventory is less than it was before. I think the beauty of the market or what we're trying to take advantage of at least is the fact that it's a huge market, right? It's there's three and a half million used cars sold every year in Canada. Our inventory, like I said, was about twenty five hundred cars. This is not a perfectly efficient market. You know, adding another two, three, four hundred cars in a market of that size is really just a drop in the bucket. And so what we're trying to do is find kind of the best cars across a number of different sources. And again, we have a a team of 13 folks that their jobs are to buy cars all day and to find that. Again, it's not a perfect market. And so the ability to find good cars at good prices is something we pride ourselves on.
0: How do you think about brand rank or brand priority? Like, Is that a consideration on the buy side? You mentioned sort of best cars. How do you look at sort of entry-level, mid-level, luxury, On the purchase.
1: Yeah, I mean, selection is such a massive driver for us. We want to make sure that we have the car that you want. And the unique thing about used cars is that every single car in our inventory is different. We have no two SKUs that are alike. You might have two. 2016 Toyota Camrys in black, but one might have 60,000 kilometers, the other might have 20,000. And so they're different cars. And so every single car is unique, which again presents a tremendous amount of logistical challenge. But from a consumer perspective, it, you might love the clutch platform. You might, you know, desperately want to buy from us. But if we don't have the car that you want and you're really picky and you want a green Subaru Outback with 25,000 or less kilometers and we don't have it, you know, you're going to go try to find that elsewhere. And so what we're trying to do is maximize selection for the consumer. And what that means is uh, a variety of cars across all a bunch of different makes and models, um, ranging from kind of entry level to more luxury. So we've sold entry level Civics to Porsches. And so you, you kind of you we want to cater to as many consumers as possible and, and give them the widest amount of selection that we can.
0: On the macro trend side of things, three and a half million used cars sold per year in yep. Canada. How does that number compare to the number of cars sold? At the beginning of the pandemic versus what you are projecting post pandemic?
1: Yeah, so at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, so that's the number at the beginning of the pandemic. And that number's ticked mm. up slightly on the used car side, but then ticked down on the new car side significantly. I think post pandemic things will normalize. And I don't know if we're in post pandemic yet, but it feels like we're getting there. But over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, I expect new car supply to start slowly coming back. Uh, new car production doesn't just turn on, you know, on a dime. So, That will take time. And as a result, I think used car prices will gradually continue to come down and things will kind of regulate itself back to normalcy. But it will take time. I think it's going to take, you know, again, like I said, 12 to 18 months, potentially more. But, you know, things will continue to normalize. Cars are one of those things that, you know, maybe you might have put that purchase off a couple of months. Some people need that sooner. It's one of those purchases that if you need a car, you need a car and that demand is still there. It's either pent up or necessarily gone away. You know, unlike, you know, things like restaurants, you know, if you missed a restaurant meal, you know, last month, you're not going to go do two next month, right? Like you, you, it doesn't. the pent up demand, while it might be there, you can't make up for that demand.
0: And you've also highlighted the opportunity on the electric vehicle yeah, side yeah. of things. Can you just explain that for listeners that might not understand? Yeah, I'm
1: super bullish about electric. I think, you know, certainly that's that will be the future. Our platform, I think, is great for electric. Frankly, electric probably makes it easier. The amount of reconditioning the electric vehicles need is far less than the typical gas powered vehicle. But at the same time, I think we want to continue to help proliferate electric vehicles. You know, we have a program through which we plant three trees for every car we sell. Uh, and so we've Planted over 10,000 trees at this point across Canada. And so I think part of the sustainability narrative and, and what we're trying to build goes really very much hand in hand with electric vehicles. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanized with Blue Toulousma a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on electriccast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered.
0: Electricast. Yeah, I noticed that on your website. That's excellent. One other... Factoid that I came across: These typical gas-powered vehicle has something like two thousand parts yeah, or components, parts, and then yeah. the moving yeah. parts. Excuse me, and the electrical side only has two hundred or something by yeah, comparison. Right.
1: Yeah, so it just it's it's less you know less moving pieces means less maintenance.
0: Yeah, what's the most challenging part of the business model? Would you say
1: it's to match supply and demand at the perfect time, meaning you know you get. If you buy a bunch of cars, great, you now have a bunch of cars, but you also need to put those through a production process. If you don't have the capacity, both in terms of real estate and then people, you know, there's a bottleneck that happens there. Let's say you solve that bottleneck and then you've got to go into... On the demand side, make sure that the demand is at the pace that the supply is coming in at. So matching, you know, it's, it's really a game of whack-a-mole. Um, there's a bunch of different groups that have to work really closely with each other across production, across sales, across marketing, across customer experience, and matching demand and supply at the right time and making sure that if demand isn't there, you have to slow down buying. If you slow down buying, then you've got your production teams that are sitting idle because they don't have cars to process. And so matching that all in real time and then you've got obviously the logistics of the end customer and delivering them you know our own flatbed trucks that we do it on and so if we have, you have know, increased sales and we need more trucks and so there's a bunch of different moving pieces that we're trying to coordinate at the same time when it works it's a, a beautiful symphony but if it's not working then it's it's a bunch of noise that uh, doesn't seem like it's working together so i think the biggest challenge is to make those pieces really work together in tandem
0: yeah it is complicated but you guys are doing a great job Thus far, just curious, do you have a mechanism and or partnerships to liquidate stale supply? We try to
1: minimize that. And there's a bunch of technology that we use to ensure that if there's a car that's not moving, is it because it's not being featured? well enough on our website? Is it because the description is not accurate of what the car actually is? And so there's things that we'll do to remedy that before it actually gets to that point. Yes. uh, I mean, the wholesale auctions are, and and there's cars, you know, I think something like 30% of cars that we buy don't meet our retail standard. And so those cars get sent to auction and dealerships or fleets or other folks will pick those up. And so that is our mechanism to liquidate. Um, so the wholesale auction is a, is a whole different industry that uh, allows us to not only buy us cars, but to sell cars that uh, don't meet our retail standard.
0: As Canadians get more comfortable with shopping for cars online, as you sort of wait this transition out, so to speak, I would assume there's still a percentage of the older customer base that wants to see and or test drive the vehicle before they buy. Do you allow them to do that? Come to your warehouse and No, no, we don't let them do that. And you'd be surprised though. I mean, we've had
1: customers we just had one yesterday in Vancouver who was in his eighties. And for each of the customers that we deliver to our field specialists who drop off the car, write a little bit of a, a story about each individual it's a couple of sentences, but it kind of gets passed around to the company. And this individual, he was he was in his eighties. You know, during the pandemic, he said that he learned to do a lot more things online, including buying groceries. And he's like, "Why not try cars?" And so we've had a number of customers, frankly, in their eighties. I think we've even had customers you know, well into their like late eighties and maybe even early nineties that have bought from us. So I, w- I would say, like, to say that we cater to the young at heart. You know, I think there's certainly going to be a subset of customers that that will want to walk into a physical loca- location just as there are customers that want to walk into a store to buy that good or or thing that they want but we do think that the convenience of buying online the assurances that we give you as a result of the quality of the vehicle and the speed at which you can get a car you know rival the in-store experience and you know I think unlike a lot of consumer goods and products that you know, there's a, there's a retail location relatively close to your area, meaning, you know, if you want to buy groceries, there's probably a grocery store close to your area. And if you want to buy clothes, there's probably a mall somewhere. And there's, you know, Walmart probably within 20 minutes of most people. And so here though, dealerships are generally far away from where a lot of people live. And, you know, the selection on, on a dealership lot is relatively limited by the physical space that they occupy. And so, nowhere in Canada or very few places in Toronto or in Ontario or Vancouver can you see a selection of a 1,000 cars. And so, you know, this allows you to do that. And, you know, again, we deliver directly to your home and can have that entire experience from the comfort of your own home and your couch. And so, we just think that's better. And frankly, the test drive itself, again, goes back to that trust element that I was talking to. The only reason you test drive a car is because you don't trust it, right? And... Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that our mechanics, some of which have 25, 30 years of experience, can tell you more about that vehicle than you can, more than the average consumer can. And most people that tr- test drive a car, they're looking for a couple of things. One, to make sure that it runs, that the air conditioning blows cold, that the heat works, and that there's no real damage that's visible to the naked eye. And so we can offer all those things, and arguably in a, in a much better and more accurate way. And that's a brand we're trying to build across the country. How old
0: is the average clutch consumer?
1: Um, in the mid-30s. Our core demographic is kind of 25 to 35. So a lot of mm-hmm. folks that are transitioning into a new job, starting a new family, Maybe moving, so those are kind of the, the life points that kind of trigger a, a car purchase. But you know, we get cars, you know, we get cars from people that are eighteen, buying their first car, to you know, like I said, in their in their late eighties.
0: That all makes sense. The mechanics that are working on the cars, how are you finding these folks? Are and are they contractors? Are they employees? Yep, of every
1: clutch? delivery uh, individual. So our field specialists and our mechanics are all clutch employees. Every single person at the company, top to bottom, has equity and, and ownership in the company. So the mechanics mm-hmm. as well. So we have a recruiting team and we've got a network of mechanics and kind of hire uh, the first few and they introduce you to a bunch more. And so we've, we've built a pretty strong network of mechanics across Canada. And for, for many of them, I mean, I think it's it's very interesting because you know, you're working on a bunch of different cars. If you work at a Honda or a Toyota dealership, you're likely just working on Hondas or Toyotas for the most part. You know, here you get to see a, a, a wide variety of vehicles and, and get to work on a bunch of different processes and see that at scale. And so, you know, we've, we've I think we've had almost perfect retention of all of our mechanics at this point.
0: I want to shift gears and just ask you a little bit about your past yeah. experience, namely uh, three years at yeah. Uber, working on Uber Eats and growing that in Canada. Assume some of that experience with Uber Eats impacted Uh, or has impacted your role at Clutch. What elements from Uber do you bring over into your role here at Clutch? And perhaps more importantly, is there anything that you were happy to leave behind?
1: So I started Uber kind of early on before food delivery was really any significant part of the business. At that point, Uber was still doing something called Uber Instant. I don't know if you remember this, but you could only get the food through the Rides app. And so we were effectively, so there was like a toggle, you know, how you can get X and you can get black Carp. There was also Instant. And it was uh, a limited selection of meals that you could get on demand. And so we would be stuffing a bunch of sandwiches in a car and then driving that car around. And then you could request that car and it would bring you a sandwich. And it was only for very certain portions of the day. And there was like five or six restaurants a day and that was it that evolved into the broader Uber Eats app that was built here in Toronto. Um, So the first kind of Uber Eats delivery was actually out of this market, out of the Toronto market. So it's very, very much a Canadian born concept Mm. globally, uh, which was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, saw the traction there and the business obviously scaled and grew faster than I think anyone at Uber expected it to grow. And at one point, largely driven by the pandemic, it was bigger than the rides business and so incredibly successful i think the biggest takeaway for me was around team building and just process i think uber was really good at driving process and data driven decision making around the marketplace and uber eats was a three sided marketplace and so you know similar complexities in that you know you've got restaurant supply you've got drivers and you've got consumers And all those things need to be working in tandem. If you've got too much demand and not enough drivers, then you can't get the food to the individual in a timely manner. And so, working through the supply and demand logistics on a real-time basis was incredibly challenging. You know, snow was probably our worst enemy. You get a bunch of snow, drivers go offline, so supply of drivers plummets, but food delivery demand skyrockets. And so, you've got this massive Misalignment across supply and demand, and then you know our job is to regulate that marketplace. So there's similar dynamics here, and you've got you know individuals that that really understand conversion funnels, which is super important for what we're doing uh, here at Clutch as well. For me, managing that kind of hyper growth was is directly applicable here, and if anything, it just helps me sleep at night because I know that the, everything that we're doing is somewhat normal. Um, and once you've done it before, uh, the first time is probably uncomfortable, but the second time you're like okay you know i've seen this you know stuff's breaking okay we got to fix it and uh, from there that's the new foundation upon which you'll grow the thing that i probably don't miss leaving behind is that customers the the angriest customer in food delivery is probably 10x more angry than the customer angriest customer in car delivery hmm. you get people that get very very upset if uh, and i think it's because you're hangry and just want your food um, i think we've all been there and uh, you know, if we're missing the side order of fries, I've seen people get pretty upset about that. Um, and so, in car delivery, I feel like people are a little bit more, and we don't we don't make a lot of mistakes. But when we do, I feel like people and consumers are a little bit more
0: uh, rational, maybe because they've already eaten. That's so interesting. Average ticket of 30K <laughs> no, thirty k versus thirty dollars. No, exactly.
1: and people get irrationally. And I think it's honestly, I think it's because of low low blood sugar. People get uh, irrationally upset about uh, a food delivery gone awry, whereas. People are pretty understanding if something happens around their car delivery, so I, I feel like I've appreciated
0: that. Uh, can you speak a little bit to the corporate culture at Uber? Obviously, you know there is what you read uh, about Uber versus what you know folks actually experience when they're employees there. What are you comfortable sharing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I can really talk to the Canadian team, and you know, I've I've spent a lot of time at HQ as well. And it's funny when I was there back in 2016 uh, and 17 when a lot of the issues around the culture was we were propping up and um, you know it was funny we looked around the team at that point and said like this is this the same company because we don't feel it here and so I think mm. you know every company that gets to that scale has pockets of you know maybe toxicity is the right word and and some companies have it more exposed than others and I think uber for whatever reason grew to become a disruptive startup at the beginning and then you know maybe more of a target at least from a media perspective when as it got as it continue to get bigger, and so when I think about the Canadian team and the folks that I worked with, I mean, you know, genuinely great people trying to do really great things, and you know, really cared about the drivers and the restaurants that we work with, and want to make sure that their interests are 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 taken care of. We are also balancing the reality of business, and you know, it's it was it was a tough business in that restaurants are are never happy paying the fee. You know drivers want to be paid more, Consumers don't want to pay, yet the business at the time was losing money. Mm-hmm. And so you've got you know four sizes of the marketplace, none of which are you know, perfectly happy. And so managing that was I would say, tough. But people within it and the culture that that I think that Uber had was one, people were incredibly hardworking, they cared, they want to do the right thing. You know, I think there's a lot of that that I want to replicate. There's obviously things that I think and missteps that were had uh, maybe earlier on to, to mitigate some of those things that kind of came out in 2017. But I think the foundation at least was quite strong and there's elements that I'd love to replicate here as well.
0: But it sounds like you're doing a great job, at least with your team. I mean, you mentioned the whole equity across the board piece. Uh, sustainability is a cornerstone of the company. It's, it's excellent. And it's great to watch from afar. So, so congrats on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, culture for us, I mean, it's been hard during the pandemic. You know, I'm a big believer in building those relationships. And what I love about I mean, companies at the end of the day are just platforms for people to get together and solve problems. And uh, what I love about you know, each of my experiences is the network and the people and the friends that you build when you ultimately leave that place and so i want to build a culture where you know when people leave which inevitably they will you know they can get together and talk about you know the crazy things we did and you know have have dinner and and drinks together and talk about you know some of the things that they built and have many reunions and whatsapp and text groups that they can chat with you know long after their time at clutch and that was i would say harder during the pandemic because remote you know it doesn't foster the the social interaction as much but now that we're slowly kind of emerging from that fog, you know, that's a big emphasis of ours to, to make sure that people, you know, we want, if you're working with your friends, it makes it a lot more fun.
0: Yeah. And I can see great potential, by the way, of having real fun clutch parties under the roof of your yeah, <laughs> warehouses yeah. or one of your warehouses uh, with, with DJs and music and, and din- <laughs> dinner and drinks, as you mentioned. Yeah. I think folks are probably waiting for that yeah, moment.
1: Yeah, no, we we were able, to, you know, when there was a, a little bit of a, a pause there that we, we were able to sneak in a, a holiday party before everything kind of went vertical again in terms of infections. But, you know, those times are important. I think investing in, in the team is is certainly a priority of ours. And, you know, at the end of the day, we just want to hire good people that want to do good things
0: let's just talk about your future plans for clutch which are ambitious you, you've said you want to service 90% of the Canadian market by the end of 2023 so we are you know recording in March of 22 it doesn't give you a ton of time to penetrate 90% of the market but it's still an amazing goal to attempt to get to. So what are you doing today versus what you have on the agenda as uh, you roll out plans for the rest of this year and into next?
1: Yeah, I think if there's one word that is going to define this year, it's going to be focus. And so we have a footprint in effectively nine of the 10 provinces. And so we actually launched Newfoundland today. We'll launch (laughs) Saskatchewan shortly And so we'll have physical presence in six provinces, and then we'll be able to service others through logistics. Now it's really just about focus and and kind of driving more discipline around the business. You know, when you grow really, really quickly, sometimes things get either put to the side or postponed. And so now that we have a really sound, solid foundation of team, uh, we hired almost 250 people last year. We want to make sure the teams are working together that cross-functional relationships are being built, that ownership lines are being very clearly defined. And startups are never going to be you know straight up into the right vertical linear. Um, they're they're going to be, you know, I talk a lot about S-curves and there's parts of the S-curve that will be flat and parts will be steep. And so the remainder of this year is taking what we have, which um, is a great team and a, and, a, and a footprint across the country, and then continue to go deeper. You know, I think until Recently, we haven't done much brand marketing and and most folks have found us, we have an incredibly high NPS, uh, close to 80. And so we've got great customer referrals and and people genuinely love our product. Uh, And so that's helped us grow organically over the last uh, several years. But as we address more and more of the market, we want to continue to get our name out there and then try to communicate a lot of what I try to communicate in this podcast in a, you know, maybe it's a 30 second commercial or a, a billboard somewhere to make sure that people at least are aware of, of who we are as a brand and, and consider a clutch as an option to buy their next car.
0: Just before we wrap up, what's your opinion on what's happening currently in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, given the fact that lots of folks are projecting. Uh, inflationary pressures on fuel, among other commodities, but but fuel being one of those things that people are talking about uh, being severely impacted. The way that I think about it, at least, is that you know if you've got you know higher fuel pr- prices, at some point uh, you'll have less demand for cars because of the pocket squeeze. So, are you watching how things are playing out? Uh, not let's not talk about the humanitarian crisis. That aside, from a, a business standpoint, as an operator, how are you watching that play out, and what are you thinking about?
1: Yeah, there's. I mean, that that's a probably in a podcast in itself. And mm-hmm. you know, I think one, what's happening there is incredibly sad. And two, I, you know, I hope that it's relatively quick, um, and and things get resolved, you know, soon. The reality is that whenever you see oil prices spike or gas prices spike, you see a higher demand for EVs. And so I think like longer term, the shift to EVs will likely continue to just accelerate. I think in the more short and immediate term the demand for cars and maybe you drive less but for many people cars are the are the only way you get around particularly in Canada public transportation networks are just not as sophisticated as they probably should be and so if you've got a family of 4 and you know you got a hockey practice at an arena you know 20 minutes away or 30 minutes away you know it's pretty hard to not have that vehicle and so while cars might be used less as a result of fuel prices I think the need for cars for many people is, is, is a reality. And, and we want to make sure that if you need a car, that buying experience is, is super easy and seamless and, and ultimately continue to evolve that we can also address your ownership experience in a, in a meaningful way. But while we certainly are watching the, the, the oil prices and, and, and want to make sure that cars remain affordable, I think the fundamental and macro demand for cars, despite rising oil prices, won't be
0: impacted materially. Well, Dan, this has been a great chat. Appreciate you coming on the show. Clutch.ca for more info on Clutch, reinventing the way people buy cars. Dan, where else can people follow what you're up to? Um, So I'm on Twitter at ParkDan.
1: I post relatively frequently on on LinkedIn. um, And then you can follow any of our our social handles on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok now at uh, Clutch.ca.
0: Well, thanks again, Dan, for coming on the show. Appreciate your time and all the best for the rest of 2022. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.